Welcome to Managing Marketing, and today I get a chance to sit down with a long-term friend and colleague, someone who is highly respected in uh, trade media as uh, a terrific commentator and a journalist about everything in media, advertising, and marketing, and that's Simon Canning. Welcome, Simon. Thanks for having me here, Dave. It's great to catch up because, you know, like I'd say we probably ran into each other, it would be almost 25 years ago. Yeah, 20, 22, 24 years ago. When like I was that. a copywriter and creative director, I was president of the Melbourne Advertising and Design Club. And you, what was the, uh, what was the um, journal you were writing? Well, at the time I was um, editing Adbrief, which, Ad uh, which was the, 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 the sort of the famous industry gossip sheet that uh, that uh, agencies, we'd, we'd print it on a Friday afternoon and uh, agencies would have, have couriers waiting outside the print shop, um, waiting to pick the first copy and race it off to, uh, to the MD and the CEO to see what was pitching, what was happening, who'd been fired. Um, it was, uh, and it also had lots of uh, sort of, I thought at the time, insightful analysis about what was going on and just uh, a little bit of gossip. Well, I remember because, uh, you know, it may be Friday afternoon, but within an hour or so, there was photocopies and highlighter uh, that was circulated right through the agency. If you were either mentioned or you'd missed something or, you know, I, I know it was in, because uh, we're talking the early days of email, you know, in a way. Oh, email email was, was, was barely a, a flicker in the eye. The internet didn't exist for all intents and purposes. Uh, you know, so we, you know the, the channel that we had was a was a print channel, a newsletter channel. You know, those who got it and couriers, couriers would you know, tear out, and then those who get it uh, get it mailed to them. They get it Monday morning in the mailbox, and it'd be ripped open. But you know, if you'd really if you'd really hit a nerve somewhere, that phone would be ringing straight um, away. Straight away. <laughs> it's amazing how, in a relatively short time. Uh, the industry has changed so much, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It has. I mean, you know, I just look and you know, I'm my, my third decade now of, of of covering the industry and commentating on it and, and seeing how it's changed. And and I've got to say, you know, the biggest the biggest thing that really triggered everything that's come, aside from technology, uh, the thing that's really affected the industry was the uh, was the death of accreditation, the uh, the guaranteed income that agencies had. Uh, through uh, the uh, the fact that they were effectively, uh, you know, the bag men for um, uh, for the for the media companies mm. for you know Fairfax and News and the networks etc. Because you know, th- those those companies those big media companies were never exposed to the threat of of non payment because the agencies had a deal that had been. Um, effectively had been authorised by the ACCC at the time where they'd get in total a 17.5% loading on their media buying for um, uh, for the uh, fact that they would have the billings sitting in their bank ready to be hand over to the media owners. It was, uh, it was um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of agencies, it was money for jam. And it was the beginning of, it was really that, that whole accreditation system which had existed from the late 70s. Um, was was the reason that creative and ideas were never valued, and that's something that, if you look over the course of the last twenty five odd years, is still something that the industry is is struggling to find, 
come to terms with is how do you value a great idea and, and that that shift in the um, that real shift in the the revenue stream of agencies uh, I, I, I get the feeling you know the industry is still yet to recover from well and in fact I think uh, we're seeing now you would have seen uh, WPP's second quarter results and we're now seeing the holding companies staring down the barrel of negative growth because what they replaced accreditation with was a uh, financial remuneration system that's best placed in an accounting firm or a law firm where you're billing on 10 and 15 minute increments. You know, the whole idea, you know, as a copywriter, that my work could be billed out on an hourly basis was just ridiculous because how long does it take to actually come up with an idea? Well, back in the day, it, 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 it took um, a good bottle of claret, a beer coaster and uh, a couple of napkins. And a, and a good pen and you'd be off. I know, certainly uh, many a good lunch led to a great creative breakthrough. Indeed, but yeah, I mean, certainly. And, and th- I mean, these are, this sort of uh, kicks into one of the other big, big changes that we've seen is, is you know, the, the, the rise of things such as procurement into mm. the mix and, and the impact they've had on, on, on you know, advertising becoming a, a you know, trying to commoditise um, the, the concept of advertising. And certainly there are elements of it you can commoditise. Uh, you know, there, there are elements of media buying that have been a commodity from day one because it's a, it's a strict airtime transaction or it's a strict, you know, column inch transaction. Yeah. That sort of thing. So yes, commoditization has been part of it. But when, you know, one of the other interesting things is the shift in language, the, the need for advertising um, across media and creative to have to find a way to talk in the language of the boardroom and of, of the chief operating officer, of the CFO, in order to try and, and make sure that it had a place at the table. And, and you know, the, deba- the, the, the debate is still going on, I think, about has advertising earned a place at that boardroom table? Well, is, isn't it interesting because, you know, going back th- three decades, you had the CEO of most agencies was on regular conversation with the CEO of most of their clients. You know, there was that CEO to CEO conversation. And then somehow marketing and the agency slipped away from being part of that, the the big table. Yeah, they did. They did because I mean, it was, you know, it was all about networks. It was all about, and, and look, networks are still massively powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you only have to look at, at Melbourne as, a, as an example of, of the sheer importance of networks. You know, what will be you know, interesting is we see companies like the Monkeys, agencies like the Monkeys move into the Melbourne market for the, for the first time. And you look even in their early stage recruitment for that agency, you can see that networks are going to be exceedingly important because mm-hmm. of the way that works. Networks were important back then. Relationships were hugely important. You know, uh, you, you look at, at, at the, uh, you know, Harold, Harold Mitchell's business was... was was helped to be created by the largesse of Kerry Packer, the support that Packer gave Mitchell. It was about networks and connections and things like that. Those networks, I think, these days are, are harder to um, are harder to have because we have much higher turnover, both in agency land and also in terms of in terms of clients. Particularly, I think one of the other great things that we've seen um, in terms of uh, the changes of in the industry over the past, you know. 20 years, certainly over the past 10 years, has been the, the, the quick pace of turnover of, of, of chief marketing officers and, and senior marketers within organisations where people were in roles for only 
two or three years and not even necessarily having come into those roles through the company, but moving across um, across industry across industry sectors mm. and, and simply applying what they've learned from an FMCG into a pharmaceutical, then lo and behold, they're, uh, they're in a, uh, a, 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 a telco alcohol fun, brand yeah, or a telco or, or, financial or something services like that. Or, yeah, but yeah. the thing is, what, what we're losing here is a, what we've lost is a connection of, of CMOs to the industry um, to a large degree, but also I think we've lost um, a connection of, of marketers to the industries they understood. You know, you look back in the day, a lot of marketers came up as salespeople. Mm. They were out in market, they understood how the, how the, the, the buyers, the consumers use their product. You know, and it may not necessarily have been the way that the product was manufactured, but they understood it. And when they came to market those products, they really got what the, the difference is. That's not to say that marketing isn't improving all the time. And that's where data comes into it. So, so the, the economic change is really important because I, I had this uh, conversation um, recently with uh, Dr. Lee Steiger at uh, Wollongong University. He goes back to, uh, he goes back to the uh, K... 20, you know, the, um, the millennial uh, uh, bug that was going to happen and all the money that was spent in the lead up to year 2000 as something that sucked money out of businesses to solve an IT problem. And then he said that was compounded by the uh, global financial crisis and recession of 2007, 2008, which is why we've seen this constant downward pressure on pricing. You know, whether it's an agency or media, this, there's this mindset. But I actually think it started before that because I got into advertising two years before the stock exchange crash of 1987. That's how old I am, much younger than, <laughs> much older than you and you're much younger than me. But, you know, I remember when that happened, what happened in most of the clients that we were dealing with, that middle management of marketing disappeared. And there was either a senior marketer or a whole lot of graduates. As the marketing departments rebuilt, they'd hire graduates. Marketers no longer came from sales or they no longer came from other areas. They're actually coming out of universities as these pre-prepared, pre-stamped marketers. But what they didn't have was any practical experience of what marketing meant. I'd have to agree with that, and and I think you know it's one of the interesting things is when you you talked about where do marketers go for their information, how do they learn? You know, we've seen the rise of focus groups, research, things like that. Um, where where is the genuine coalface experience of what what consumers are looking for and what consumers want? One of the interesting things in this transition to sort of the digital age and social media is that we're actually finding a reconnection with a group of consumers, not necessarily all consumers, who, who whose voices are again being heard and are in the ears of the marketers. The problem is, is that you now, instead of having, you know, uh, months or, you know, long cycles where you could had time to, to listen, learn and react to what consumers were wanting or how their behaviours were changing and what you needed to do for your brand, for your product, to try and keep keep in lockstep with that and, and potentially take a lead for it. We now have so much voice out there that is seen as a consumer voice um, that we have to react to it every single day. We have to react to it every single minute. You know, a crisis is, is just a tweet away mm. uh, for a brand. Um, you know, you only have to look at even in the last, uh, the last 24 hours, a, a Pizza Hut um, app failure, which was... Uh, 
charging people multiple times for uh, for uh, a transaction that they didn't think was going through. You know, that, that that's all it takes is one or two people to have that happen to it. Maybe an isolated incident, but they, they put it out of their social media streams. It get pick, it gets picked up. Then all of a sudden, it becomes a uh, it becomes a thing. It becomes a it becomes a meme. It yeah. becomes it becomes a, a mainstream story. media story. Yeah. And and I think if you want to look at another example of that, that's a, a recent example in the last couple of days. You only have to look at a photo of Malcolm Turnbull holding a beer and a baby oh. at once, and just how this is you know the great fake news discussion and that's another challenge it is for the industry across trade across everything what is real news what is fake news um, but again you know this was something that took only a few minutes to to turn mm. into a flashpoint it's interesting um, you raised the idea about social media because in some ways enabling the consumer and, and you know we hear about uh, consumer created content uh, and and the desirability of that, but it's actually impacted the two industries that you've spent a lot of your life uh, commentating on. And one is journalism, because this whole thing of citizen journalism has had this impact. You know, we've seen recently the Senate inquiry into uh, public interest journalism, but it's also impacted advertising as well. The idea that the agency and the creative department is the only place that has the ability to create content has actually been completely disrupted, hasn't it? Absolutely. And look, I would actually take it back a, um, a, a quite a few steps to that because before before we saw the uh, before we saw YouTube come in, you know, user created content. Before we saw uh, Twitter arrive, before we saw Instagram, before Facebook was a thing. Long before MySpace was uh, going to be a burnt business <laughs> model by by um, by the Murdoch family. Um, what we what we did see was the rise of something different in creativity in media agencies and creative mm. strategy within media agencies. It was something that um, Universal McCann was probably in the Australian market very much at the forefront working on campaigns for Magnum back in the, in the early 2000s and the late 90s uh, doing stuff for that. But what happened was we saw, we, saw, we saw the idea of creativity being taken away from the creative agencies or if not taken away, certainly challenged, certainly challenged mm. by a group of people who up until that point had been considered glorified box tickers you know weren't you know a strategy was um, a strategy was the Sunday night movie on nine and uh, the NRL uh, the NRL early in the evening and the AFL on, on seven and thank you very much I'll uh, collect my pay and head down to the pub for the afternoon that <laughs> or was the old a, or the old Sunday movie roadblock yeah, you know? absolutely that was a that was a strategy and yeah. and and so so I think before before we started to see this sort of shift that's now come through through digital and then um, technology and applications and the empowerment of consumers that has so disrupted journalism and so disrupted the advertising industries, we actually saw an initial disruption, which again came out of, again, came from accreditation mm. because media agencies suddenly had to think, we've got to value ideas, we've got to come up with strategy, not just not just things like that. And so that that's sort of the beginnings of it. And I think one of the really important things we should always try and think about is is history, is, is think about where things came from. What was the beginning of something? Why did it evolve in the way it, it has evolved? Because it, it can give you some really clear pointers as to as to where you might be at now and how, how things might evolve into the future. We forget history at our peril. Yeah, well, uh, the interestingly, the agency accreditation was primarily driven by the advertisers. And the advertisers were looking at it, and, and the way they won their case 
for accreditation was that they were able to prove that it was anti-competitive because it allowed a small group, relatively small group, to have some sort of cartel control over it in that to be accredited by the media owners because people forget accreditation was actually the big media publishers the the news the fairfax the nine networks the acps if you weren't accredited you could not you could not buy media but the thing that was never discussed was the fact that to be accredited and i think you alluded to it before you needed to have in cash 10 months So one month of billing 10 times sitting in an account so that the media proprietors would know that you were able to pay your bills even if your clients fell over. So that was the benefit for the media publishers. The benefit for the industry was that it meant that you weren't getting any, you couldn't be a fly-by-night operation. You couldn't come and set up an agency unless you had significant cash reserves or assets available to you whereas now you know and the thing that cracks me up is that uh, when people you know marketers will often say what new agencies are there and what new agencies aren't there you know there are so many because to set up an agency today is the simplest thing you hang up a shingle and if you think if you think of the uh, of the powerhouse agencies some of which have now fallen by the wayside but you think of the big names that were around at the time they were built on the seven and a half percent um, non-rebatable, and this again, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about value banks and things like that. We can mm-hmm. talk about that a bit later. Uh, the rise of value banks. Well, you know, the value bank existed back in the day in what was a secret rebate back to um, back to clients. Often, you know, five ten percent of the media billings was mm-hmm. was rebated back. But the th- the thing to remember too there is is you know yeah there was this massive amount of money um, that was was sitting there. It it, it created. Um, the first media independence, uh, Dennis Merchant and uh, Harold mm. Mitchell getting together uh, uh, to, to set up the first media independent agency. But it also created the powerhouse agencies that dominated the Australian marketplace. The Clemengers, um, before they became part of BBDO, uh, the George Pattersons, mm. um, the, uh, uh, the multinationals, which were, you know, the, the YNRs, the JWTs, the uh, McCann Ericsons, all built their businesses not on the back of necessarily brilliant creativity. They built their businesses on the back of very, very good revenue because they were buying media as well as as creating the campaigns. And again, that's what I come back to when I alluded to giving away ideas because you didn't have to charge for ideas because you were making all of that money on the back of the media buy. And yeah, the world did change, and the you know there had to be some change to the system. I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't think you're sitting here saying accreditation is uh, would have lasted this long, or, no. or would even be the right solution now. But I think the big downfall was that there was nothing to replace the model, other than, and and I've heard different arguments. Some people say it was actually proposed by the agencies to move to an hourly rate, a cost recovery Mm. model, and others say it it came from procurement or from the marketers. But I I think the worst way to buy ideas, and in fact, no other creative industry sells their ideas by the hour. Mm. Indeed, and look, I I was sitting there in the federal court on the day the accreditation decision was handed down. Um, you know, I'd been dealing with, you know, one of the major proponents of the scrapping of that system, who was Bob Miller, mm. um, the, the CMO of Toyota in Australia and also 
the head of the uh, Australian Association of National Advertisers at the time, you know, who had effectively spearheaded the campaign, as you alluded to earlier, um, to, to have the system scrapped. And I think to a degree, a lot of the industry genuinely didn't think because because the um, the authorization had carried through for so many years, um, the the industry did not really think, and the uh, Advertising Federation of Australia at the time did not really believe that the federal court was going to strike this down as cartel behaviour. And when it happened, there really was no Plan B, mm. and we've been seeing the results of no Plan B for creative agencies and those agencies that were reliant on billings and reliant on that revenue ever since. And we've, we've seen all sorts of interesting ideas come up, agencies coming up with, you know, let's own a piece of the product, let's own a bit of the IP, let's own this mm. bit, let's own that bit, but still coming back to, you know, billing on head hours. You know, when you you walk into an agency and you see an executive creative director being billed on a you know an hourly rate of a thousand bucks to to look over a brief for a client, you know, mm. is that a is that a, a business model? I don't know. I think I think we're at a point now where the industry as a whole can probably do across the board a lot better. Mm, absolutely, because the problem is that as soon as it went to the because I, I, you know, uh, accreditation finished in what was it ninety ninety five ninety five early ninety six it was scrapped. But and look, I just want to point out another thing that was also uh, because you know you talked about some of the flow on effect um, in terms of um, in terms of you know how agencies were remunerated. Well, the other flow on effect of the scrapping of the accreditation system was that the accreditation system allowed the authorization for the um, advertising standards code yeah. that also supported, and they were guaranteed that if you if you had a um, an ad rejected by the advertising standards council, um, the media owners were in in lockstep; they would refuse to run something. That was TV, print, outdoor, you name it; they would not run an ad. There was just a guarantee it wasn't run. And we had a couple of year period where there was actually no regulatory body for the advertising industry. And then finally, the AANA set up the Advertising Standards Bureau, which which they'd been hankering for because there was a lot of um, a lot of pressure from government to get some sort of uh, some sort of system in place because we'd seen some campaigns, particularly like brands like Windsor Smith, which had mm. put some fairly offensive stuff out there. Not not compared to Wicked Campers these days, but certainly stuff that had uh, um, in outdoor in particular that had really upset people, and and so the industry was sort of. You know, what do we do about this? The government said, if you don't get a regulation system in place, we're going to regulate. The AANA was obviously deep concerned, deeply concerned about you know, freedom of commercial speech and so set up the Advertising Standards Board, which was, which was a challenge to launch at the time. It, it, it wasn't particularly good at the time when it first launched. I, I give them credit over the years. They've finally come to a model that's actually worked very well. Fiona Jolly, who I think um, is uh, not too long ago celebrate, celebrated 10 years running the ASB, took them a long time to get the model right. They're still tweaking it. It's still mm. growing, as it should. It should always be well, a living, breathing thing. <clears throat> that's right, because, you know, um, when you went through the list of media before, there was like five different channels. You know? mm. Now when you add digital in there, and, and we saw recently there was uh, uh, alcoholic beverages on Instagram clearly targeting mm. teens with their uh, ready-to-drink brands and and so you know the ASB sitting there going well what do we do because mm. it's not actually paid advertising mm. it's content it's mm. branded content and how do we enforce this I mean there's going to be challenges for any regulatory system be it 
industry-based or government legislative because the industry's evolving so quickly. And the other thing that, that, that had to evolve was the pace, with the speed with which the ASB could, could sit in complacent. It would take them sometimes two or three months. Yeah, to too late. In, to <laughs> in and in fact, you know, looking back to the, the, uh, the glory days of the campaign palace, mm. um, you know, the palace was, was very successful with um, its advertising campaigns for Clio. And the strategy was pure and simple. Create an ad that would cause controversy it would get complaints made to the Advertising Standards Council. By the time the Advertising Standards Council had actually run and sat in judgment of the ad, the campaign was over because the magazine was already off the off, off the shelves. Yeah. And, yeah. One of the things um, that I believe that happened with the loss of accreditation was that suddenly agencies and their clients spent a lot more time talking about money. Because, you know, you, you just have to watch Mad Men or have lived through it. And there was very little discussion about money because the commission was just part and parcel of what happened. Suddenly, when you're talking about retainer discussions and, and, and having to quote every piece of work, money becomes centre to it. And I think it's actually had a disruptive effect to the relationship mm. because, you know, it, uh, marketers and their agencies fo often form very close personal bonds mm. suddenly when you're throwing in a conversation about money it changes or constantly reminds you that this is a commercial relationship which makes it in many ways more transactional do you think that's part of the problem with the whole trust issue that we're seeing today look i, I think so and we've seen developments recently look that the, the way the analogy i would make is 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 that you know at the time at the time when money was easy for agencies money was oxygen you know, yes, it was life-giving, but it was also everywhere. You know, you were rarely deprived of it. You know, you didn't suddenly find yourself in a place where there was no oxygen. However, food, you needed. You had to seek out water. You had to seek out food. You had to seek out sustenance. Those were the clients. Those were the briefs that you were hunting. Once you got them, the, the oxygen and money was there. The, sh the shift changed when suddenly, you know, you actually had to go out and buy oxygen tanks. It was almost like they'd moved into space. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you had to bring your oxygen with you and you had to make sure you had enough. And, and you began to, you know, you had to ration it properly and all the rest of it. Those sorts of things. And, yeah, and it, it, it has corrupted the relationship to a degree because, again, it's, 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 it's forced the ideas onto the back foot. It's forced the ideas... You know, there are agencies out there who are brilliant at getting great ideas across the line. Um, but for, I think, a lot of agencies, the challenge is how do you how do you spell time getting ideas across? And then the other thing is getting ideas across to clients. Clients are so aware of their money they're spending. And now with such a multitude, so many different channels where their budgets are going. Mm. You know, you've got digital, which is offering, you know, almost a new a new subsection, a new channel every month or two. Yeah. You know, something new where you've got to consider it, you've got to put it into the mix. So budgets are under pressure. You know, think about TV production. You know, you'd, you'd, you'd produce an ad for two, three, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000. Then your media schedule would be a million, two million behind that to run it on Sunday nights. And that was good. And you could, you could really, you could, the, the creatives and the directors could really... They could pour love into a project because mm. they could afford to, because the money was there, because it was one 30-second ad or five five pieces of a campaign that you were making that were being cut and recut and repurposed for the same medium, maybe a big one for cinema. The, the rest would simply run on TV and five different purposes. Now you've got less budget, 
but that same that that budget which is two hundred thousand without the media budget behind it is being asked to create 70 pieces of content repurposed across instagram youtube um potentially twitter facebook Mm. um do you do a live stream how do you control that and and clients are having to sit back and think about all of that and agencies are having to think about which of these do we hand to our clients what about what is really going to work for our clients it's so complex and then at the top of it all, we've got the wonderful world of data, you know, where everything <laughs> is everything is measurable. And measurability was the great the great unknown. And yet, even if you subscribe to you know people like Mark Ritson or Bob Hoffman's view, even now that we have the ultimate truth of data, that's even even impossible to pin down. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, yeah, what we're talking about here is the fact that a lot of people blame procurement. Right? And yet, from my experience, because we started uh, the company in 2000, and it wasn't until 2005, 2006 that I ran into my first procurement people. And it was almost like they were sent along because what people had seen as marketers were looking for ways of expanding their budget. You know, we saw the rise of digital in the early 2000s and, and confusion around how to invest it. Uh, a lot of people, especially agencies, have said to me, oh, it's the procurement people that have driven down costs. In actual fact, procurement was used by many marketers to drive down costs so they could actually afford more of these channels. Mm. The other thing that's happened was the rise of the specialist agency. Yeah, because when we talk back at the um, at the days of accreditation, there was one Cleminger, mm. there was one George Pats. Fast forward from '95 to 2005, and you know Ogilvy, Ogilvy One, Ogilvy Digital. O- you know, suddenly these these agencies had turned into all these little specialist groupings because they were competing with lots and lots of other people that had set up specialist agencies. Absolutely. And, and then you look at it from the holding company perspective, you know, the IPGs, the WPPs, the, um, you know, the Omnicoms, etc. And, and, and the fact was, was that those holding companies were seeking, to, were seeing revenue potentially diff- drifting off into different areas, public relations, mm. um, you know, we've seen the rise of experiential, as you said, digital agencies, you know, a whole range of design, mm. um, and, and then of course media and media strategy and media planning, things like that. And so there was a need to sort of have an offer in that space mm. so that you could continue to try a and- A specialist offer though, you know, that mm. was almost like you had to put a flag out that said, mm. we're an experiential agency and over here, this is our digital agency mm. and here's our search agency. Yeah. And, and it was interesting, but I think I think one of the interesting things about procurement was procurement began. What 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 the industry is is coming to terms to now, and I think we've seen it over the last eight or nine years is 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 understanding the language, you know. And data has helped do this. Better reporting has helped do this. Uh, you know, agencies and 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 marketers needed to learn how to how to how to speak the language of of the CFO. Mm. You know, and and a lot of the information that is now available to agencies and is now available to markets allows them to do that. Allows them to to speak on on a similar term. Where you know, it's it's the most abused quote in the history of advertising. You know, I don't know. 
yeah, half, half budgets. But you know, it, it is. Yeah, it doesn't bear repeating. But the reality is, is that we kind of have shifted into this world where, you know, you've got a really good idea of what most of your advertising is doing. And one of the really interesting things that's happened with procurement is that in the early days of procurement, procurement came from a a, a position of of buying supplies, purchasing logistics. Um, you know, they, they had a line function mm. um, that was involved there, and a lot of you know, a, a lot of companies were asking procurement to play in a role, uh, play a role in something they didn't really understand and they couldn't really measure. Mm. So they applied old standards, existing standards, to what they were doing, and on the basis of that, it was really hard for agencies to justify what they were doing mm. because it was not measurable. What we've seen, I think, happen particularly over the last decade is that procurement has uh, the, the, the data and the analytics that go behind that sit behind a lot of a lot of agency work now allows a line to be drawn on what the expenditure is, what the outcome is. Um, you know, they become the basis of FE awards entries apart mm. from anything else. And now that now that they can they can actually speak that language, procurement is beginning to get it. There, you know. Agencies themselves and and the holding companies are coming up with you know the models that will allow a clear translation of uh, an advertising brief to a a production of a piece of communication and a reportable outcome mm. that actually can finish up in an annual report as as part of what what the companies are doing and so I think we're seeing that evolution of language. Happening that is, a, you know, a procurement. I think will be over time less of a dirty word, less of a, a practice as it isn't understood because procurement itself has has been forced to learn what this industry does. Well, historically, procurement has had huge impacts on a whole range of industries. You know, the aeronautical, aerospace, aeronautical um, uh, uh, category. You know, procurement actually lifted the quality. And the reliability of aircraft in the 70s you know the the application of the procurement process it's not about cost reduction it's actually about um, improving productivity and improving quality of outcomes mm. i think the big problem was that as you say when they started talking to marketing the measurements that marketers were using and the measurements agencies were using were not conducive to quality, it wasn't about quality. Mm. It was about cost because agencies were selling their service. Into by two thousand and five, agencies were selling resources at a cost with an overhead and a profit mark margin. It wasn't a conversation around um, what value are we creating. It was a conversation around how many resources I need to do it and what was the cost of those resources. Which for a procurement person is, if it's a cost, I'm going to look for ways of reducing it. If it's about creating value and you can actually give me a, a value parameter against cost, then I'll start looking for ways of improving value and minimising cost. Absolutely. But, yeah. And, and I think I think what we're seeing now is we're 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 seeing that transition. You know, we're seeing the importance of you know creative awards have their awards have their place within the industry. Um, serving you know serving the industry and serving people with the industry really well but i think you know i've always been a great fan of effectiveness and effectiveness awards because ultimately it's about outcomes and i think that's one of the things one of the things we're seeing a lot more within agencies now agencies were and and you know the work the work the work i know it's again it's a bit of a cliche um but the work the work 
No, it's been the BBDO agree. position. I know. The work, but, the, but work the work, the work. But the work, the work is... The work is what it's about if the work is actually serving a purpose and, and delivering an outcome. And I think the outcome that the work often delivered in the past, particularly for the famous agencies, for want of a better phrase, was that the work was hugely entertaining but may not necessarily have delivered a business outcome. Um, certainly might have raised brand profile, had talkability, mm. did it sell stuff. I think what's happening now is, is that... Um, the work, the work has has to sell stuff first and foremost. Mm. You know, sales is what it's about, or you know, whatever the. Well, that's what is David, that David Ogilvy yeah. said. Yeah, you know, if we're not selling, what are we doing? But there's, but there's nothing new under the sun, is there? That's really, right. it's it's all it's all basics. And again, this is why I'm a great fan of history. Mm. This is why you know when. Um, um, when I was at Mumbrella, I, I sat down at the knee of Michael Ball before he passed away. Michael Ball, for those who, who didn't know him, was um, was the the most successful advertising suit in Australian history. Um, he uh, he was David Ogilvy's right hand man. He was going to be uh, he was going to be David Ogilvy's replacement, um, but then circumstances intervened, and having set up Ogilvy as a worldwide network, Michael then set up his own agency, which was URRSCG, having bought a piece of the Ogilvy network to set it up on and became one of Australia's richest men, um, certainly the richest advertising man in the country and, and hugely successful. Um, but one of the things, I sat down with him for several hours before he passed away and we talked about so many things in the industry that, that remain relevant today because, you know, there are some really basic ideals. And whether it's a, it's a Michael Ball, whether it's a David Ogilvy, whether it's a Bill Burnback, um, you know, there, there are these people in the industry who, you know, it doesn't hurt people to go back and research what they were talking about while, while, the, um, while the environment might have been different, while um, the pressures might have been different, and while the lunches certainly might have been different. <laughs> um, the, the reality was, was that these people actually got consumers in their day and age, and the 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 the, the very heart of what what they were um, what they were preaching yeah. um, was about selling stuff on behalf of brands. Yeah, the 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 thought that I like is that while the principles about humanity remain the same, our applications change depending on our circumstances, and that's the thing that when if you study human beings. The fact is, in 100,000 years, we really haven't changed that much. But what changes is the way we become, we behave as human beings in our environment. And I think that's one of the great things that I enjoy about marketing, with a science background, is that it you know, I've been trained to study with my science background, but it's just absolutely fascinating when you apply it to something like marketing. Mm, absolutely. You can absolutely see that. Simon, there is so much I could talk to you about. It's just absolutely fascinating, except we've run out of time and I'm only through like half the things. So I would love to do this again. If you're up for it, we'll pick a time when you've got uh, another half hour or so and sit down and have a chat. That'd be fantastic. And I think, you know, look, we've, we've talked a lot about the past. We've talked a lot about where the industry has gotten up until today. I think there's a lot more to talk about, about the potential directions it goes into the future. Absolutely. But there is one question I have before you finish. Out of all the agencies you've ever had to report on, which one is your favourite? <laughs>